Um, so, and with that, I want to remind us all of our mission. Our mission, we want people to come to know Jesus and to give their life for him. That's why we say we're here about helping people find and follow Jesus. We are going to take a break from our, our series to the book of Acts. If you've been with us, we've been walking our way through the New Testament book of Acts. And we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And that is one of the hallmark passages of, of the, the resurrection in our New Testament. And so with that, I'm calling this sermon, Life Without the Resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, you know, where he defeated death by rising from the grave, since that is the greatest miracle in the history of time, the very reason we celebrate, the reason we gather here today is because of the resurrected, resurrection. Because we don't worship a Savior that was alive and then died and then now is dead, but we worship a Savior that was alive, he died, but then he rose from the grave. And so with that, the Apostle Paul, he writes the book of 1 Corinthians. And, he, and with that, he's answering a series of questions. And so this is what the, the text we're going to be, be in today. And so if you have your Bibles open, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 15 this morning. With that, as you're getting your, your Bibles there, let me ask you some questions. And the question is, have you ever imagined your life without, you know, fill in the blank. Have you ever imagined your life without... Let's say ice cream. I'm not sure if life would be worth living if I could not eat ice cream. I love it. Uh, could you imagine what life would be like if your spouse wasn't with you? Me, I wouldn't make it. Maybe two weeks tops, and I would completely fall apart. I might look like, like a wild animal, but the truth is I'm like a, 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 an animal that's been in the zoo. I might look like, I, but you turn me in the wild, I would fall apart. So um, how about this? What would life be like without the responsibility of taking care of children? I tell you it would be like, it looked like freedom to me. You know, we had no more kids. Yes, some of you are living the dream that we can only dream about. A few more years, baby, and we're there. Uh, how about this? Life without ever having to go to work again. Again, some of you are living the dream that I have a long time before I can live that dream. But how about this one? Have you ever thought what life would be like without Jesus? What would life be like without Good Friday, where Jesus went to the cross? What would life would be like without the Easter story? And if you're a Christian, that should be a terrifying question. But the truth is, the vast majority in the people of, in our world, in our country, in our hometown right here, that's exactly how they live. They are effectively living life without a resurrection, and again, for a Christian, that should be a terrifying question. So the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the, what everybody should be asking themselves, Christians and non-Christians, you should ask, well, is there any validity to the resurrection? Is it true? Well, that's exactly what the Apostle Paul is convinced, trying to convince believers in the city, the church of Corinth of. So with that, if you have your Bibles, let's read 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 4. Paul writes, now I remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believe in vain. For I delivered to you of first importance what, the, the, what I received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. Here's my first point for this morning. Point number one, the foundation 
of everything a Christian believes is the resurrection. What I just read to you, that is one of the early church's creeds. What the early church would do is they would read that, that text we just read there, verses 1 through 4, and they would read it over and over and over again. In fact, they would recite it often. You know, we're very quick to, to memorize John 3.16, which I think we should. It's, a, it's an amazing verse, but why do we skip over 1 Corinthians 15? The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the foundation of everything that we believe. Why do we forget about 1 Corinthians 15? The Apostle Paul said this. He said, the gospel I preach to you. This is the gospel. That, that, that God created the heavens and the earth, and then his last creation, the pinnacle, the greatest of all his creations, he created man in his own image. In, in, in his own image, he created male and female. That's how he created them. And he put us in the Adam and Eve in this idyllic condition in the garden. And he said, do whatever you want, just one thing don't do. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what did they do? They disobeyed. And before you get on Adam and Eve, know that we would have done this. If it was me and my wife in the garden, we would have done the same thing. We would have blown it for the rest of us. And because of that, sin came into the world. And our very DNA, it's stained, it's tinted with, with, with sin. And here's the worst thing about it. There is nothing we can do about it. No amount of being good or good acts will ever clean us up from our, from our sin. Then, you know, so much of our world wants to say, well, if, if you have a bunch of good works in, in one scale, and then if it outweighs your bad, when the end of the ends, well, then you will go to heaven. The Bible says that is false. That we're all sinners, all of us. And there's nothing we can do. But that's why Jesus came. That Jesus came to this earth and he paid for our penalty on the cross and he died. He was buried in a tomb, but he did not remain dead. On the third day, he rose from the grave. And whoever calls in his name, they will be saved. It's not by doing a bunch of works or one work or doesn't matter. It's not by baptism or going to church. It's by faith and faith alone that if you place your full faith in Jesus Christ, you will be saved. And that is the gospel. That is the gospel that the, the apostle Paul preached. And he said, receive. That if you receive that, that you will be saved. And that is my hope and prayer for anybody that may be with us today, that maybe they aren't truly saved. That throughout the course of this message or something will work in their hearts, well, God will, will, will touch you from heaven and he will save you. And Paul said, stand. He wants us to stand on this truth, that we will build our entire lives on this fact that Jesus Christ rose from the grave. And Paul said, being saved there. I want you to know it is the gospel that saves. Religion does not save. There is a never-ending list of, of things that some, some man will stand in a place like this behind a podium. I'm sure there's someone in this town today that is preaching a false gospel to people. They will say, if you do this stuff, if you live your life just right, well, then maybe God will save you. But that is wrong. That is a lie. God has no list. There is no amount of doing do's and don'ting don'ts that will ever save you. It is by faith and faith alone. And Paul said, this is of first importance. See, Paul said, this is the most important thing in the entire world. There is a never-ending list that people come up with, say, this is, this is so important. But Paul says that's all nonsense. He says this is the most important thing in the entire world. Are you ready for it? Paul said the most important thing is that Christ died. Did you know it is a historical fact 
that there was a man named Jesus? That there was a man named Jesus, he lived 2,000 years ago and he walked this earth and he said some things and he was murdered. It's an undeniable fact, historical fact that that happened. But there's so many people think this is an idea, it's a theory that this guy named Jesus lived and died. And I think that one reason people do that, because some people wrongfully think that, well, this is the oldest Bible, excuse me, the oldest um, writing in antiquity, and that's simply not true. There is, there is countless numbers of, of writings that are so much older than the Bible, but you know what? There's actually writings that are the same time as the Bible. There are authors that were not Christians that wrote about this man named Jesus. There was a guy named Josephus. He was a Jewish historian. When I say Jewish historian, I mean he was not a Christian. He was a Jew. And he wrote about an individual named Jesus. And he said that he did miracles. Here's this, this, this man that did miracles and how he was eventually crucified, that the, that the Romans nailed him to a, a cross, and that he was buried in a tomb. That's just what Josephus says. And he says that the, there was this, the, the, his followers claimed that he rise from the grave. Well, here's the deal. If Jesus died, then we have to ask, well, why did he die? Why would this man willfully go to a cross and allow these, these Romans to murder him? Paul tells us in that text, he says, for our sins. Jesus paid the penalty that we all rightfully deserve. So how many sins did Jesus die with? The correct answer is all of them. The entire sins of all of mankind for the history of all, for all of mankind. That's how many sins Jesus died with. But how many were, were his well, the answer is none. They were your sins. They were my sins. You know, there's something that happens to my family on, on occasion. We'll be out to eat, and, and uh, someone will pick up the bill. And if, if you're in this room and you've done that, let me say thank you, because that can be a hefty bill. When it, I've got some, some kids in there that can do some eating. And I'm telling this story because I want you to imagine a bill, not the size of a, the one that my family racks up, but imagine a bill closer to our national debt. I don't want to get political here on this Resurrection Sunday, but, but our national debt, last I looked, was hovering somewhere around $28 trillion. That's a bunch of money. Well, raise, raise your hand if you have the ability to pay that off. I see no hands. How about, do you know somebody that can pay that off? Still, no hands. How about if we all came together, could we, uh, not only you, but everybody you know, could we come together and pay that off? The answer is No. We can't. We don't have the ability. You see, first you have to have the ability to pay off a tab like that, even if you wanted to in the first place. But that's exactly what Jesus did with our sin debt. Not only does he desires to pay it off, but he has the ability to pay it off too. And you know what? It happened. And not only did it happen, Paul said it happened in accordance with the Scriptures. You know, it's something to find out that somebody did something amazing like the death on the cross. And it's absolutely life-changing to know that he rose from the grave. But did you know that it was prophesied hundreds of years before, centuries before Jesus went to the cross, century before the resurrection? It was prophesied. That's exactly how it would go down. There was a man by the name of Isaiah. He wrote a book. It's in our Bibles. It's called the book of Isaiah. And he wrote that book 700 years before Jesus was ever born. 
And Isaiah predicted exactly how, how this Messiah, this Savior, would come to the, in the world. And then he predict, predicted exactly how he would die. In Isaiah chapter 7. It's just me. Everybody pray. Really, Jesus, heal this microphone. I'll go old school if I have to. So, Isaiah, he predicted 700 years before Jesus was ever born exactly how he would live and die. If you go to the 7th chapter of Isaiah's book, he tells that exactly how this Messiah would come, that he would be born of a virgin. That's what Isaiah would said. He said, look for the pregnant virgin. The baby inside the pregnant virgin, that is God come in the flesh. And then if we turn to the 52nd and 53rd uh, chapter of Isaiah's book, he tells exactly how this Savior was going to die. And then Jesus comes on the scene centuries later and he does it exactly as Isaiah would said he would do it. And Paul says that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. I want to say it's one thing to predict your birth. That's pretty amazing. It's another thing to predict the way that a manner that you would die. Again, amazing. But then to have that uh, come back, the, the person would rise from the grave exactly how he said it, he would. That is absolutely life-changing. There was a Rasmussen poll that said that 77% of Americans believe that Jesus rose from the grave. Well, if you believe that Jesus predicted his own birth, his own life, his own death, and his own resurrection, and then he pulls it off exactly as he says he, should, he would, shouldn't that be the focal point of your life? It absolutely should, but the truth is the vast majority of Americans are not Christians. We need to realize that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is an historical fact. Jesus Christ, the, the, the resurrection had happened, and there is so much proof. There is an overwhelming body of proof that, that proves that Jesus really did this. First, the, the resurrection was not a secret. There is at least 15 historical references to, to Jesus meeting with people and, and touching people and talking with people and, and having a meal with, with people after he came back from the grave. I want to say Christianity is completely unique in at least two ways, many more. But here's one. Jesus died for others. No other founder of any religion can say that. Muhammad cannot say that. Joseph Smith cannot say that. Buddha cannot say that. No one can say that but Jesus Christ. Christianity points to an empty tomb that Jesus rose from the grave. And again, that is completely unique in the history of time. But is there any evidence for this? What, is there any proof that this really happened? Well, let's talk about the, the proof. Look in 1 Corinthians verse 5. He says, And that it appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that was in me, whether then 
it is, was I or they, so we preach and so you believe. Here's our second point this morning. Point number two. The validity of the resurrection is verified by multiple eyewitnesses. Jesus appeared to Peter on that first Easter Sunday. I think Peter needed it. After all, he just um, denied Christ three times. And then the, the, the scriptures tells us that he then appeared to the twelve. This is a reference to the apostles. Now Judas has already committed suicide at this time, and so really there's only eleven. But this group of men are referred to as the, still to the twelve. And then he appeared to five hundred Jesus appeared to 500 people at one time. I think this is what the Apostle Paul was saying. He's saying, if you don't believe it, go ask them. There was 500 people that saw it. If you don't believe it's a historical fact, go ask them because they're still alive. You can hear it out of their own mouths that they saw Jesus alive and well. There's some that say that, the, that these five, they had a hallucination. Well, let me tell you, 500 people do not all have the same hallucination at the, at the same time. It is impossible. Paul is saying, go ask them if they saw Jesus walking and talking and touching people because he's alive. And then Jesus appeared to James. In my mind, at least, James, for me, that's, that's the nail in the coffin. The final nail in the coffin, did Jesus rise? Because if you don't know James, let me introduce you to James. James is the half-brother of Jesus. If, if you don't know this, Mary and Joseph, they went on to have more children after Jesus. Well, one of them was a man by the name of James. Let me ask you this. Who here has a sibling? This is interactive. Raise your hand if you have a sibling. All hands. Keep them up. Keep them up. Now, keep your hands up if you worship your sibling as God. I see no hands. Okay? But that's exactly what James did. If you, if you don't know it, during the, the Gospels, it, it, it says that the, his, his family... Thought he was out of his mind. Well, that was James. There's a time when, when Jesus is teaching and, and his family comes and they're like, Hey, Jesus, you're, you're crazy. You're, you're a lunatic. Let's, let's come home and let's put away this, you're the savior of the world thing. That was James. But then something happened. And James changed his mind. And what that something that happened was, it was the resurrection. The resurrection happened and then unbelieving James became believing James. And then his little brother began to worship Jesus as God come in the flesh. If you remember at the cross, their mother, Mary, Mary was at the cross. And she witnessed with her own eyes the brutal uh, murder of her oldest son. And it's believed at this time Joseph was already dead. And so I have to believe that sometime Mary and James are in the same room. And Mary would have been grieving as any mother would have been to see something like that happen to her child then James would have been like any good son and would have consoled his, his mother. But then something happened. And what happened was that big brother Jesus, he came back from the grave exactly as he said he would, and that fact changed James. And James worshipped his brother as God. And then there's one more that Paul tells us about. And that one more, that last eyewitness was Paul. If you've been with us through this series in the book of Acts, in chapter 9, we, we read how there's this man, Saul of Tarsus. And Saul is going from house to house in the surrounding countries. He's dragging men and women out of their homes, and he's putting them in jail for being a worshiper, this, this man who claimed to be the Messiah. But then something happened. There was, the, uh, there was this day that he's on the road to Damascus going to round up Christians, and then he met the resurrected Savior. He had a face-to-face -face encounter with Jesus. 
And then there's a flash of light that was so bright it knocked Saul to the ground. And he gave his life to Christ. And that's the grace of God. The grace of God changes everything. The grace of God takes somebody who is a murderer and a persecutor of Christians and makes them a man that goes on to start churches and starts discipling people to give their life to Christ. Consider some of the eyewitnesses that accept the grace of God. There's a man named Matthew. He is a tax collector. And we kind of gloss over that title, but really a tax collector is really nothing more than a mafia thug. And he accepts the grace of God, and he is forever changed. There's another guy that, that's referred to as Simon the Zealot. The, the word zealot essentially means a terrorist. So there's this terrorist, and he meets the, the, the Savior of the world, and he gives his life to him, and his life is forever changed. Really, all the apostles are this man band of misfits that nobody would pick to change the world. And then last, there's this man, Saul of Tarsus. Again, he's a murderer of Christians. He's the one that persecuted the church. But he he meets Jesus and he goes to change his name to the Apostle Paul and he starts churches and he's given his life for the gospel. And there were hundreds of people that saw the resurrected Savior and they saw him with with their own eyes. You see, those that accept the grace of God, they're forever changed. Look in verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 15. It says, now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? Here's my third point this morning. Point number three, the resurrection of Jesus proves that there is life after death. So this book that we're reading today, the book of 1 Corinthians, really it's a series of of, uh, answers that are coming from the Apostle Paul. So what must have happened is the the church in Corinth must have wrote a letter to Paul asking a a bunch of questions. Now, we don't have that letter, but we have Paul's answers. So then what we must do is infer what the questions must have been based off of the answers. And I have to believe there was probably one question that said, Hey, Paul, are you sure that Jesus really came back from the grave? Are, are Are you really sure? Now, see, these believers in Corinth, they're being influenced by people outside of the church. There's a a group of of Jews called the Sadducees. The Sadducees were guys that denied the resurrection. Not only did they deny the resurrection, but really Sadducees denied anything to do with the afterlife. Well, that's only a small group of people in in Corinth at that time, because most of the, the people were Greeks, Okay, so most of the, the, the church consisted of Greeks before you know, they, were, they believed in philosophy and all the, the Greek philosophers. So these people were heavily influenced by a man named Plato. Well, Plato, he, he lived in Athens, and he taught that the soul was immortal, but he said the body was not. He taught that the soul was good, but the body was bad. So I think most of these Corinthians... Their issue was not with life after death. They believed in life after death because Plato believed in life after death. But their issue must have been with this bodily resurrection. They're like, Paul, are you sure our body's really going to raise from the dead? And here's the genius of, of Paul's reasoning. Paul, in a sense, asked, well, what do we lose if Christ did not rise from the grave? He's essentially asking, what do we gain if, if, if Jesus did resurrect from, from the grave? And here's Paul's point. If there is no resurrection, then what about Jesus? That's what Paul is asking. Because Jesus said he would rise from the grave. 
And if Jesus didn't rise from the grave, then everything is lost. Paul spells out the consequences if Jesus was not raised from the dead. What Paul is saying, he's saying there's this domino effect that happens if Jesus did not raise from the grave, and it has massive consequences. Let's read about this. Look in verse 13. Paul writes, But if there is no resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we have testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. Here's my fourth point for us this morning. Point number four. Without the resurrection, there is no Christianity. Let me say it like this. Without Easter then there is no Christians. Why is Easter the biggest holiday of the year for us? Because without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we're not here. You see, the the followers of Jesus Christ, we are banking everything on the resurrection. Our faith is rooted and grounded and anchored in Christ. Exactly who He is and what He's done. I'll say it like this. As Christians... In the game of Texas Hold'em of life, we are pushing all in on the resurrection of Jesus. We're pushing all in and we're only holding one king. Because our faith would be empty, it would be worthless, it would profit nothing. It would mean nada if Jesus didn't rise from the grave. And I say that because faith has to be rooted in an object. A Christian's faith is rooted in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. You know, our culture says something ridiculous. It says, well, just have faith. Just have faith. Well, faith in what? That's so vague. If you're going to have faith, it has to, be, has to have a, a, an object. Well, ours, it's not in our intellect. It's not in the cosmos. It's not in a higher power, if you will. Our faith is rooted and founded in the person and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know, everybody has a worldview, whether they want to admit it or not. But the big question that we must ask, well, which one is right? Because every worldview is mutually exclusive, meaning what they teach, it doesn't say that there's multiple options here. If one is right, then one must be wrong. Or they can both be wrong, but it's not that they can both be right. Kind of like if I say, well, the sky is blue. And someone else says, no, the sky is yellow. Here's the truth. One of us is right and one of us is wrong, but we both can't be right. And Paul says, if there is no resurrection, then our preaching is in vain. If Christ did not rise from the grave, what I'm doing here right now, it's absolutely pointless. If Jesus Christ did not come back from the grave, why am I standing here? Why are you even here if Jesus didn't rise from the grave? Because there is no resurrection, then there is no Easter story. If there is no Easter story, then Christians need to pack it up and go home. Because then we have no hope. You know what we should do if there is no resurrection? Go home, have a nice little Sunday brunch with your family, hunt up some Easter eggs, because there is no tomorrow. If there is no resurrection, then there is no good news. But Paul says, but there is good news. Because Jesus Christ really did come back from the grave. Jesus died from our sins. He was buried. And then Jesus came back to life on the third day. And so what the cross shows us, the cross shows us that Jesus was willing to save us. The cross shows us motive. But I want to say 
that the resurrection shows that he has the means. In order to have an open and shut case in a, in a, in a court of law, prosecution must have three things. You must have motives, means, and you must have opportunity. Well, the cross proves the first, that Jesus has the motives, that he was willing to be scourged with the cat of nine tails, where they, they took this instrument and they basically removed all the flesh from his back. And then he hung him on, they hung him on a cross to where Jesus had been put up next to that rough, coarse piece of wood, and he hung there, his back exposed, lacerated for over the course of six hours. You see, the cross shows the motives of Christ, that he was willing to forgive. But the resurrection shows that Jesus has the means that Jesus has the means, the ability to grant eternal life. That Jesus and Jesus alone has the, the means to give us life after death. He proves this by raising himself from the grave. And again, no one has ever done that before. No one else, no other faith has the means to forgive. Only Jesus Christ. The empty tomb proves that Jesus is the only one that has the means. Look in verse 17. It says, and if, the, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is f- futile, and you are still in your sins, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are all people to be most pitied. Here's my fifth and last point for us this morning. Point number five. Without the resurrection, then we are still in our sins. This is a very serious point. Without the resurrection, then Jesus' death accomplished nothing. Jesus came to give life. So if he did not rise from the grave, then we're worshiping a dead Savior. If Jesus didn't beat the grave, then sin and death, we did not beat that either. And we are still in the bondage of sin. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, then we still have our sin problem. And then then there is no hope from the future. Then we are still alienated from God. We are still under the wrath of God. And then we are still all accountable to God because we are still in our sins. And so what we're all doing, we're still waiting for the judgment of God to come. Because if Christ did not rise from the grave, then we are still in our sins. See, most people want to preach this thing and say, this is just a message of morality. Hey, be good, be nice to others. That's what most people wrongfully teach. But the message of the Bible is one of forgiveness. You see, we need God's grace. We need God to forgive. There was a man, last name was Moody. He once said this. He said, quote, We are not in the land of the living going to the land of the dying. We are in the land of the dying trying to figure out how to get of the land of the living. The question everyone is asking is, how do I get to the land of the living? How can I go to the land that I was made for, namely heaven? Well, do I need to clean myself up? Is that what I need to do? Do I need to get rid of my sin problem? Do I need to dust myself off from the sins of my past? You can't. You cannot clean yourself up. Only Jesus can make us clean. Have you ever been eating something? Let's say you're over at Ranchito's and you got one of those piping hot chips. Everybody loves those when they come fresh out of the fryer. Okay, I'm the only one, whatever. Anyways, anybody ever done this where you scoop a big old th- bunch of that salsa and you're bringing it to your mouth and you're almost there and you know what's about to happen and a big glob just falls on your shirt? What do you do? I got my nice white shirt. Well, I grab a napkin and I dip it in the water and I start scrubbing it. 
And I scrub it and I scrub and I scrub. And pretty soon I have a salsa stain this tire, the size of my entire shirt. I don't need a napkin and water. I need some kind of cleaner that is de- specifically designed to get that salsa out, right? Well, that's what happens with Jesus. You can't make yourself righteous. Because all of our, 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 our good works are like filthy rags to the eyes of God. How many filthy rags do you need to clean up your, your sin problem? The truth is you can't. We need God himself. And when Paul says fallen asleep, this is a death for, you, uh, for, for, for death. So this doesn't mean that your soul is taking a nap as some faiths wrongfully teach. You see, at death, if you're a believer, then your spirit goes to God and your, your body is waiting for the resurrection. Paul is saying here, he's saying, but if the resurrection didn't happen, then there's not even life after death. Paul is saying if there is no resurrection, then what happens to all those who've already died? They have perished. And he says we are all people most to be pitied. Why would Paul say that? Why would Paul say that we are pitiful people? The reason why, because we're banking everything on the resurrection of Jesus. Again, we pushed all in on, on Jesus And then he says, well, if that's what we're doing, we essentially believe a lie. If there is no resurrection, then then we're worshiping Jesus who was a phony con man. And the disciples, they go on to suffer and were persecuted for a lie. So our hope in Jesus Christ was only for this life, and it didn't extend beyond the grave. Jump all the way down to verse 32. Paul says, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. He says, if the dead are not raised, then let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. He says, if, this, if that's what happened, well, then basically this life is as good as it gets. So we might as well just go home and party it up. Don't even save for tomorrow, because we're not even promised tomorrow. Live your life now. But he says, but if Jesus was raised from the grave, spoiler alert, Jesus was raised from the grave. So let me say it like this, since Jesus has came back from the, day, the dead, For believers, this life is as bad as it's ever going to get. And the best is yet to come. I heard about an old lady. She was a faithful member of the Baptist church. And she was getting up in years. And so she scheduled a meeting with her pastor. And she came in. She said, said, Pastor, I want to make sure at my funeral it's done just the way that I want it to be done. And so pastor, he's, he's taking notes, and he says, well, how do you, how do you want your, your funeral to go? She says, oh, here's one thing I want to happen. At my funeral, I want, I want the casket down front, and I want to have an open casket. And can you get one of the forks from the fellowship hall? I want, I want there to be a fork in my hand. And he said, why in the world do you want to have a fork in your hand? She said, oh, pastor. She said, you know what my favorite thing about this church was? My favorite thing was the fellowships we would have. And she said, my favorite thing about those fellowships, because as they were serving the food, they said, be sure to keep your fork. That meant the best was still to come. And let me tell you, for believers, if you're in Jesus, the best is still yet to come. Because the resurrection of Jesus proved that there is life after death, and the best is still yet to come. Look in verse 20. Paul writes, but the fact Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. How can you know if the resurrection is true? Because there's some of you that are probably here, you're wrestling with, is this true? These people come to this building, they talk about this all the time. Is it true? Well, I would tell you, weigh the evidence. 
Look at the sources. Is there any credibility to the sources? Let's look at what the eyewitnesses said. All four Gospels speak of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. All four Gospels speak of an empty tomb. And what happened to the disciples that continued to preach this message? Did they get famous and they get wealthy? No. It cost them their life. All of them gave their life for this message, except for John, who was exiled on the, on the island of, of Patmos. All the other disciples were martyred for their faith. And then after them, the, the early church leaders, every one of them were martyred for pre- preaching the resurrection. And also, how about this? The enemies of Christ became Christians. Saul of Tarsus, he goes on to change his name to the Apostle Paul, and he starts planting churches. How about this for evidence? Jewish wor- worshipers, they stop worshiping on Sunday, and they excuse me, on Saturday, and they start worshiping on Sunday. For centuries, the Jewish believers, they always worshiped on Saturday because that is the Sabbath. The Sabbath's on Saturday because that's when God rested. But something happened on Sunday to where the sect of Jewish believers would now say they're following a different faith and they would change their day to worship on Sunday. Why? Because that's the day that Jesus rose from the grave. And all about this for evidence. With the resurrection, there's a transformation of lives. For over 2,000 years now, Christianity has been, been, been changing lives, has been growing, has been flourishing. Paul's point is this. Here's the point of all of this we've been re- re- reading. Jesus has been raised from the dead. And since Jesus has been raised from the dead, do you know what that means for you and I today? What is in it for us? Why does it even matter? Because Paul here, he turns the negative into a positive. Look in verse 20 again. He says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. You see, our faith is in a real person. And that real person, right now, he's seated at the right hand of the Father, making intercessions for those who believe. So we don't worship one who is alive and is now dead. We worship one that was dead and is now alive. The, or, or preaching the gospel isn't a waste of time because it is the very power of God. We are not misrepresenting God by preaching the gospel because, because of the resurrection we can be forgiven. And we are promised that we will be raised from the dead too. I want you all to know that there is hope after life. The Christians shouldn't be pitied. That we should be envied because we are the ones that truly know God. Paul said the resurrection of Jesus ha- ha- proves, in Paul's word, that Jesus has become, he says, first fruits. That Jesus has become the first fruits. When in, in the Old Testament time, in the, in the Gospels time, what happened is that the, the harvesters would go out and they would pick the first part of the harvest and it would be taken to the place of the worship after the Sabbath. And it was given to the church or given to God as a sign that the entire harvest belonged to God. So what this is what Paul is saying. Jesus is the first fruits, and believers are the harvest. Jesus was raised from the dead, and this gives us assurance that we will be raised from the dead too. Read in Romans chapter 8, verse 11. It says, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. If the Holy Spirit dwells in you, then God will raise you up from the dead just like He did Jesus. That is, if the Holy Spirit dwells in you. 
Look verse 21 of 1 Corinthians 15. Paul writes, For as a man came to death, excuse me, for as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. See, what the Apostle Paul is doing here, he's contrasting between Adam and Jesus. He's saying Adam was the first man because Adam came and Adam sinned. That brought the nature of sin and death to the entire human race. And we are not born morally neutral. So often somebody will say, oh, look at that little baby. That little baby's so sweet. They're innocent. Ask any young mom. She'll go, that baby's not sinless. No, that baby will lie. You don't have to teach a baby to lie. We do it on our own. And then we grow up to be adults that lie. Because we're all born with a sinful nature. Our DNA is, is stained by sin. Because Adam rebelled against God, Jesus had to come and rescue us back to God. Adam brought sin, but Jesus brought forgiveness of sin. Adam's sin was great, but Jesus' death and resurrection was greater Adam brought alienation, but Jesus brings reconciliation. But here's the question. Ask yourself in your heart, are you in Jesus or are you in Adam? Because if someone dies in Adam, then they're the one to be, they're the one to be pitied to be, because they perish. But if we die in Jesus, something absolutely amazing will happen. There was an old man in the, uh, the Old Testament And most scholars believed he walked the earth about the same time as Abraham. His name was Job. And think about it. Job did not have a Bible to study. He didn't have any of the blessings we have. But yet he asked one of the best questions in the entire Old Testament. He asked this in Job 14, 14. He says, if a man dies, shall he live again? He's asking, is there life after death? That's what Job is asking. The the fact of the matter is we're all going to die. If you're here and you're hearing this message, here's the truth. Someday you will die. It's inevitable. Statistics do not lie. One out of one in this life die. And most people wonder, well, what's going to happen? What's going to happen after we die? Well, I want to make it crystal clear. I don't want anybody to go to their, their, their table and they're having their little Easter meal and go, hey, I wonder what Pastor John's point was. What was he talking about? Here, I'm going to say it crystal clear so you don't, you don't mention it. You have this life, and you have this life only to choose. Jesus, or do you choose some other way? All the other ways are empty. They, they, they lead to hell, but only Jesus brings you to the Father. But you choose, and you have this life to choose. You either choose Jesus, or essentially you choose yourself. Jesus says this in John 14, verse 6. And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. With that one sentence, Jesus did away with what every single world religion teaches. Oh, you can choose this way, you can choose that way. Our, our culture says just choose a way. Every way, lay, way leads to God. Jesus says that's a lie. That Jesus is the only way. And Jesus is the only Savior that He came and He died for what we have done. And Jesus is the only Savior that rose again to prove He can grant eternal life. So if you've never trusted Jesus Christ, your Savior, I'd implore you, call on Him. For most of us, it happens through a prayer. 
And if you've never given your heart and life to Jesus, I would tell you there's not a better day to do that than on Resurrection Sunday. And I would invite you to do that right now. As you sit there in that chair, all your heads bowed, all your eyes closed, pray a prayer. Say something along the lines of, Dear Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. And my sin, it separates me from you. But yet you came and you took my punishment on the cross. On that cross, everything that I've ever done, the weight of that was put on you. That the full weight of the wrath of God the Father was poured out on God the Son so that I could be forgiven. I want to place my faith in what you have done, Lord. I give my life to you. And I pray this in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.